Why haven't you seen the gold Hello and welcome to another episode of FilmWise, also known as the Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast, where each episode I bring on a guest who introduces me to a film that I've never seen before, and in return I introduce them to a superhero or comic book film that they've never seen before. My name is Bubba Wheat, and today my guest is Jim O'Kane. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for having me for on the show. This uh, sounds like an interesting uh, format, and uh, I'm looking forward to chatting about all these different topics. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a lot of fun. Um, I've been doing this podcast for a while now, and I, I took a couple years hiatus, but I'm uh, bringing it back, hopefully looking... Um, my plan is to to release monthly episodes of, of this of this show again, uh, so hopefully I'll, I'll stick to that because this this is always a lot of fun getting to introduce myself to uh, to new movies that other people love. Um, but first off, since this is your first time here, we're going to spend a little bit of time to get to know you. And you know the the reason why I asked you on is because you're a big part of the movies by minutes community. So um, let me ask you, how did how did you get involved in, in movies by minutes? Well, I wound up. I mean, I I think I've been listening to podcasts now for about six or seven years. I used to listen to things like um, Thrilling Adventure Hour and and different uh, podcasts like that. And then I got into uh, the James Bonding podcast uh, series that uh, Matt Gorley's doing. And one time on one of their on one of their shows, they mentioned being on Star Wars Minute and being uh, very excited about it and exp- explaining a concept. And I thought, wow, that is a, I, I obsess on a lot of films. And I thought that was, that's a great format. I, I, and so then I tuned into Star Wars Minute and uh, listened to that. And I thought I could do this with a couple of movies that I enjoy. Um, I usually, I'm, I'm a, kind of a, on the, <laughs> I think I may be the oldest uh, movies by minute mm-hmm. host. And uh, so my, my movie tastes kind of skew toward the sixties and seventies or earlier. Uh, so I decided the first movie that I always wanted to try that uh, that I had been thinking about actually building uh, uh, had been over the years building a website about the movie Airport, the 1970 uh, Russ Hunter film with uh, Dean Martin and uh, Helen Hayes and a whole cast of uh, of big league stars from back back in the day. So yeah, I've, uh, I've heard of that series, but I've never seen it myself. Yeah, it's uh, I I've put the uh, uh, so so I, I started out with that and I just. Uh, uh, another film film buff friend of mine that uh, went to high school with uh, my friend Mark Cerulli, uh he agreed to be a part of it. He knew nothing about about podcasts, so he said, mm-hmm. "I'll I'll be on it, but you've got to run everything." So uh, that's where I uh, I did all the mixing and uh, figuring out how to add things, Apple Podcasts, all that you know, the tech stuff. And then he was there mm-hmm. to to talk and tell, tell me what I was thinking wrong about. Uh, about airport and uh yeah, that's, that's to, what we call is the the cushy gig in, in podcasting whenever you yeah. just have to do the scheduling and show up and talk yeah yeah he's he was the pontificator and i was the uh, the engineer <laughs> so <laughs> uh we had and as as i went through it i was looking through it minute by minute and trying to plan ahead and, and see what to do is i thought what i really want to do is find people who worked on the film or uh, who knew something about the technical aspects of the film. So I started reaching out and, uh, I found, uh, John Finlater who played one of the characters. He was, um, kind of a, uh, uh, the, the gopher on the movie. And, 
he came on the show and we talked with him. Uh, we had uh, several different people who uh, worked with um, the uh, the composer Alfred Newman. He, Alfred Newman also did that. When you hear the 20th Century Fox score, he wrote that, and his final film score was Airport. Um, and we wound up uh, through Mark's contacts. Mark used to work for HBO, and he he had some some contacts. For our final episode, we had Robert Hayes from the movie Airplane to uh, to talk about the movie Airport, and he he talked about how uh, the two get confused that you know Airport's the drama and Airplane's the comedy. And uh, I I as a final as a very final episode, I reached out to Jacqueline Bissett uh, to be on the show because she played the stewardess in the in the movie. And uh, she she had called me, and I, I didn't recognize the number, so I didn't pick up. So she left me a rather long, long apologetic uh, voicemail message. She said, I'm sorry I missed you. I really can't be on your show. I don't have time and so many things going on. And, you know, good luck with your show, but I really can't be on. So we <laughs> we just took her voicemail message and used that as the final episode. <laughs> That's great. Any, any port in a storm, you know. But yeah. uh, that, was, that was my introduction to uh, – to the world of podcasting. And I realized I, I learned a lot from doing that. I mean, I, I found out what worked and what didn't. Um, I found out the kind of, the kind of uh, guests I wanted to have on the kind of topics I wanted to discuss. And so I, I thought, what movies do I really enjoy? And, uh, you know, as you're involved in superhero movies, I enjoy superhero movies myself. And one of my favorite ones, although he's not a superhero, he's a hero. Um, I decided to do the next one about the Rocketeer, the 1991 Disney film. Yeah, and that's that's basically where um, I I came across you as a as a podcaster because I've re- fairly recently um, become more involved in the movies by minutes community myself, and so I've been going through and listening to some of the completed series, and so and um, I I don't remember which one of the other ones that I listened to. I think it might have been Return to Oz Minute or Princess Bride Minute. Um, that's, you guessed it on one of those and brought up the Rocketeer minute and talked about having Billy Campbell as, you know, basically once I listened to it, he's, he's practically like the, the third unofficial co-host. Yeah. He, he would call up and say, are we doing a show today? I'm like, sure. (laughs) Why not Billy? And, uh, yeah, it, it, that was probably the most surprising part of it. When, uh, when Billy Campbell reached out to us, I think we had maybe, for four episodes no i think it was actually the the second episode after the second episode aired um we had we had recorded like four episodes and uh and i just got this tweet from him saying i'm listening over my uh, oatmeal and this is great can i be on i don't think i can get jennifer connelly on but yeah i'd love to be on your show <laughs> and i was i was jumping up and down and screaming in the middle of the night when I, he's he lives in um in scandinavia and um you know i got this message at two in the morning and my wife was thought I was having some kind of an attack and I was like, it's Billy. It's on. And I was waving my, waving my phone at her. I said, Billy, he wants to be on the show. So she was, that's nice. And, <laughs> um, and yeah, my, my co-host Hal and I were just, uh, you know, like uh, starch struck teenagers uh, having him on the show, but we get, we got used to each other. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Billy is now a, a really good friend. I think, uh, you know, we, we talked to each other a lot and he, he explained a lot about how much, uh, how much he loved the movie and that it really he he never experienced the kind of um it, it, he's been in a lot of films but he never experienced the kind of sheer joy that people expressed to him 
whenever they talk about the film. He said it, it seems that he seems to have the most fans through that. And he really it's one of his favorite movies because it was one of his first it was his first big starring role. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, just, you know, talking with him about that, it was interesting hearing that that behind the scenes um, working with Joe Johnston and working with Dave Stevens, the creator um, and all of his friendship. I mean, you know, gosh, he wound up in a five year relationship with Jennifer Connelly after that movie. And he's a lifelong friends with Alan Arkin. Now they go on sailing trips together and things. So it's just, you know, it's it's nice knowing that people that are in a movie that you love are, are likable folks. I, that was the best thing to come out of, uh, of doing the Rocketeer as a as a podcast. Yeah, and I know there's there's that bit of advice, you know, never meet your heroes, but you know it's always good because once in a while you 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 have stories like this one where you're actually able to meet your heroes and they do live up, if not exceed what you have in your mind they they might be like. Yeah, it 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 was. I mean, it was really lightning in a bottle when we were doing it. I was I was expecting it to be another airport uh, podcast, which was it was fun doing airport, but it was kind of a struggle in getting people to come on the show, people to talk about uh, different topics that we had. Um, fortunately, my my co-host Hal Bryan, who's uh, he's head of uh, the uh, all the social media and uh, and media production at the Experimental Aircraft Association up in Oshkosh. Um, he has a magic Rolodex and he knows, he knows, lots, he knows lots of people in the aircraft industry and aerospace. We had a fellow who really makes jetpacks come on the show and, and talk about what it's like to f- fly with a rocket on your back. And, uh, it just, just having all these amazing people when every, every week I'd see like, well, who are we, who are we going to talk to this week? Oh, it's this guy and he worked on this. And it's, it was just always a fascinating time. Um, I looked forward to doing the shows. They were they were hard to edit because I didn't want to leave anything out. Even all the even all the ums and uhs were part of just it, it was just being part of the conversation. I mean, we were yeah. very fortunate. We even had like Danny Bilson and Paul DeMeo and Paul DeMeo uh, passed away only a few months after we had him on the show. Um, but having the original the, the screenwriters to talk about what it was like working on that while they were working on the flash television series and having, you know, I mean, this was the, this was the peak of their creative lives and, and letting us hear, hear the, the inside part of it. it. Now, as I said, many times on our show, the Rocketeer never had a director's commentary or any special features. So, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, I felt like we were the director commentary. And fortunately at the very end of our show, at the very last couple of episodes, we managed to get Joe Johnston reached out to us and asked us to be if he could be on the show and sure joe come on come on (laughs) on. we had him on for for three episodes and uh it's yeah and that was uh, his very first podcast too yeah exactly and i I, you know just very honored to to have all these people spending time i mean he's working on you know the new narnia series and and things like that and these people how they have time for this it, it's uh it's marvelous just just being able to, to have them on and hopefully we'll get i mean i'm still i'm still hoping for timothy dalton and uh jennifer Connolly <laughs> and uh alan arkin's already said no he doesn't do that he just he, yeah, alan arkin just kind of uh he gets i think he gets physically ill being in interviews so he just he won't come <laughs> on the show um but uh maybe someday we can we can talk to him offline and and see see what his thoughts are about the movie yeah that's uh you know, I've I've been listening to several movies by minutes uh, podcasts, and they're all very different from each other. You know, some some of them really focus on 
really just discussing what's happening in the in the minutes. And the Rocketeer one was, you know, I, I think a fascinating outlier because it, it was like, uh, you know, about 50% an interview show. And then you would kind of go around and eventually talk about the minute on screen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, there was, there was so much we wanted to talk about and we didn't want to repeat ourselves. And mm-hmm. my biggest fear at, at the whole time that I was doing this was that if Disney ever found out about it, that they're, you know, for one thing, they, they tell us to cease and desist, but n- that never happened. Um, but the other, the other thing was um, I was worried that Disney would suddenly understand what a powerful medium podcasting is and they would you know just go out and hire some professional you know uh, movie voice uh type to come in and bring all the actors together and have them chat about stuff every day and and that would be the, <laughs> the rocketeer minute would sound the way i was imagining it to sound but uh, i think we did a pretty good job on it and i'm very pr- i'm very proud of it it's one of it, it's one of the greatest uh shows i've ever been a part of and I think it was just real magic to be able to do it in that time and uh, and have all these different voices of different people show up. Um, so that uh, and I mean, it, it, being part of uh, well, the Rocketeers are known as the Finhead community mm-hmm. and hearing from so many Finheads. I mean, we have we had some super, super fans that um, there's a fellow in New Jersey who owns. Uh, you know, costumes and props from there. And he'd, he'd send us pictures of what he has. He's like, you've got the, you know, one of three <laughs> Rocketeer packs and he's got Jennifer Connelly's dress from the South Seas. And uh, it's mind boggling, but I never, I never would have had an opportunity to interact with people like that. Uh, on, you know, except for this podcast, it, uh, the way I've described it in the past is a podcast gives you the perfect excuse to talk to things that, to talk about things that you love with, with people you've always wanted to talk to. Yeah. And you know, I've I've haven't been nearly as lucky to talk with as many industry people. Uh, I've had a, a few um, a few nice gets, uh, but I'm I'm working on trying to get more of them with uh, my other podcast um, about time loops. I'm I'm hoping to uh, whenever I get to maybe some of the lesser known ones and the more recent ones that uh, I'll be able to do something similar with that. Uh, so I'm I'm looking forward to uh, to doing that in in the future, um, but you know I, I'm also a superhero movie guy. So l- let me ask you, uh, other than I mean I I know you've said several times that The Rocketeer is not really a superhero movie, um, but what what's your background with superheroes and, and superhero movies? Um, let's see. I would go back to superhero movies <laughs> i when i was a kid growing up i loved the television show batman i'd watch it wednesdays and thursday nights mm-hmm. on abc and uh, the summer following the initial release of batman they made a batman movie and as far as i can think of that's the earliest superhero movie i ever saw the the batman movie and it was you know it's just uh, they they had whoever yeah, was available the adam the... west batman movie yeah, for, yeah, I, yeah i imagine for all, all the all the yeah. kids out there that's, uh, you know, the 20 and 30 somethings that's, that might be listening to this. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It wasn't the Michael Keaton one. It was the one before <laughs> that. The real Batman to me. <laughs> everybody has their own Doctor Who and everybody has their own Batman. I, I, Batman, no matter what, will always be Adam West to me. Yeah, I, and, I, I feel like I, I'm an old um, an old person at some, some days. And 
you know, even still, you know, me talking to you, it's like if I say, you know, the the Batman TV series whenever I watched whenever I was a kid, that's the the nineties animated series. The animated series, yeah, yeah. Which you know, which is it, it it's it's such an uh, an original take. I mean, it, it comes back to the Frank Miller idea, and I mm-hmm. I enjoy I enjoy the Frank Miller era Batman, uh, and and everything that came out of uh, w, WB Studios of getting getting back to the basics, that whole Fleischer Brothers look and feel. Um, I think the animated uh, Batman the animated series did more for resurrecting Batman than, than, you know, bringing back Michael Keaton, you know, the, the Michael Keaton version of the movie, the Tim Burton era, uh, Batman. And I, I'm really happy for that. I enjoyed the Frank Miller, uh, uh you know, the dark Knight returns and all, all that, that series. And I think the, that whole spirit of Batman came out in the animated series. And I'm glad that a lot of people in their twenties and thirties have that as a baseline. Um, I, when I was a kid, I read, you know, I read the DC Comics Batman, and I knew it was nothing like what was going on with the Batman mm-hmm. TV show, the Adam West Batman. But uh, which, was, which I I love the Adam West uh, stuff myself. I've I've never actually gone back and watched the the TV series, but I love the movie, and they uh, I've, I think it's been about you know over five years ago now they they came out with two animated movies. Yeah. Uh, with Adam West, and those were fantastic. I, I love yeah. both of those. Yeah, they they definitely captured the spirit of, of Batman '66, and uh, and being yeah being able to have Julie Newmar once again on screen back as as Julie Newmar was back in the '60s, um, it was is very fortunate. And interesting that I, I keep thinking with with using the voiceovers and use uh, and using the you know the images the, the 1966 images with the with the modern voices it kind of adds second life to you know we, we see a lot of cgi de-aging and things like that so maybe actors at least their likenesses are going to be getting a second life through computers and animation I, I wouldn't mind seeing um you know like uh like a 1978 battlestar galactica with uh, with some of the voice, well, although there aren't that many voices left now, but, uh, but doing the original, the original character, having a Lauren Green Adama, having a, uh, having Richard Hatch Ap- Apollo in an animated series. I wouldn't, wouldn't mind seeing that. Um, but, but getting back, getting back to, uh, to superheroes, I think the earliest, I mean, as a, you know, a, a grown up superhero movie, I would have to say would be, uh, uh, the Salkin brothers, um, 1978, uh, Superman. That would be yeah. That that would be the real start of it all. Um, I enjoyed it. I I saw them filming part of that. Um, I was working at the Radio Shack in the Chrysler Building in Manhattan back in uh, 1978, and they were uh, they were just finishing up some second unit filming there because they filmed it along 42nd Street, and I was I was on 43rd and Lexington around the corner, and uh, so there were always lights and you know all kinds of uh, wrecked buses and stuff they just put into place and they they film uh after rush hour and just turn on all these giant carbon arc lights on 42nd street um but seeing the movie and reproducing uh, reproducing parts of uh manhattan metropolis uh was interesting it was interesting living in the new york area back back then because there were things like king kong for example 1976 king kong mm-hmm. uh they they filmed that at the world trade center and I didn't see them filming it, but I saw them dismantling the wrecked, you know, when, after Kong fell off the World Trade Center, uh, they were dismantling the wrecked King Kong out in the middle of the plaza there. That was a, 
and just but it, it to me it was always fascinating to see places that I knew in real life showing up in movies. Um, the train, for example, in Superman, if you remember, uh, Otis goes downstairs in Grand Central Station, and uh, there's a, a detective, a New York City detective, following him, and a uh, uh, the trains are running underneath Grand Central, and uh, he's trying to follow Otis into Lex Luthor's lair, and at the last moment, as he's trying to get across the tracks, this uh, this train comes through, and uh, the detective gets pushed by a hydraulic uh, press. He gets pushed out into the tracks and run over. And he gets run over by the uh, – uh, I'm a train nut, so I, I apologize in advance for this <laughs> way too detailed thing. He gets run over by an FL9 that's number 5023. And I used to take the, I used to take the Penn Central home. I lived in Brewster, New York. And uh, I used to see the 5023 all the time with one of the locomotives. Uh, and you know, seeing it in the movie and knowing it was going to take me home from Radio Shack, <laughs> it's just kind of a little, a little bit weird going between movies and real life. I'm sorry if, if, if I've gone straight far from the idea of superheroes, but that's that's my my personal relationship with the Superman movie is that it it has elements of things that um, there's there's a scene in the movie Superman where uh, uh, Otis is buying a newspaper and he steals a candy bar. Uh, from a blind newspaper dealer in Grand Central, and the dog notice the dog that's with the blind guy starts barking at Otis, and Otis throws a quarter in. He goes, "Oh, and I brought a I bought a candy bar too." That newsstand, I used to buy candy bars at that newsstand <laughs> for getting on the train. So that's a uh, that's my connection. I'm, I wish I had a better connection to superhero movies, but that's <laughs> that's my personal connection with superhero movies. Yeah, that's you know that, that that's fascinating. I've never really um, had too much of a connection with any sort of filming locations, even though I've, I've often been like, like near uh, a lot of filming stuff. Um, like I, I remember cause I, I'm from Springfield, Illinois. And okay. I know the big thing that they had was uh, legally blonde. Um, they, I think legally blonde too, maybe they filmed the Capitol building and they used ah. Springfield, Illinois' Capitol building for some of the ah. shots. <laughs> Neat. Wow. Yeah. It, it, it's always fun when you see when you see just a moment in time. And you're like, I know that place. I've been. You know, and uh, it, I know for some people it takes them out of the 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 the, the movie, the, the the suspension of disbelief. But to me, it's like, oh, I, I have a connection to this. I understand what, where they're filming, what they're doing with. So um, that's I and I I think I think a lot of the, the superhero movies that are around today, even though many of them take place on Earth or they take place, you know, it's uh, I think a lot of the stuff takes place in such generic places. I I miss having that uh, that connection to real real world places. Yeah, because I know like Marvel. It's funny because Marvel always used to be the one that was based in the real world because they lived. Yeah. In, New York City and other real places where DC was the one that lived in, you know, Metropolis and Gotham, all the, yeah. the fictional cities. Yeah. But now with the movies, they're, you know, they, they take place on in Wakanda and then <laughs> like Shang-Chi is in this, this other fictional place and Doctor Strange is in this other fictional place and they're in space now. And so it's like the movies have moved away from part of what made marvel what marvel is today 
Yeah, very grounded, you know, and I, I, I guess it's just a part of the whole, you know, living in the, the volume or the green the green screen stuff. It, it, they can really be anywhere and they choose to be elsewhere. Um, either that or they're they're in Vancouver and they're trying to pretend that it's not <laughs> Vancouver. So. Or in, in Georgia, which actually yeah. I, I'm living just outside of Atlanta now. Oh, OK, so you zombies so they, walk by every day. <laughs> yeah. So this, you know, Atlanta is like the the next um, you know, the, I think one of the top four or five filming locations right now and, and a lot of Marvel stuff, especially like Marvel TV stuff is being filmed out here. Yep. Which I, I haven't, I haven't dug into that yet because I've only lived here a few months now, but, uh, I'm curious if, if I'm going to get a chance to, to, uh, see any of that happening now. Well, it, yeah, it's, it's possible. And it's, it, you know, the thing is that it happens so fast. They come in, they set up and, and get it done. And I mean, there's there's so much so much concern on budgeting and things. So it's amazing how fast they can get this stuff together. Like they'll they'll, they'll take over a, a town for 72 hours, build everything up and tear it all down and go out. I used to live, <coughs> I used to live not too far from a town called Woonsocket, Rhode Island. And if you've ever seen, there's a Richard Gere movie called Hachi about a dog who would wait for his owner at a train station every day. And they filmed this in Woonsocket because they had a train station that was not being used as a train station. It was just the freight freight trains went through. So for one week, they went in and refaced the entire abandoned downtown of Woonsocket, Rhode Island. They put up, you know, like record store signs. And uh, it was in 1950s, so they had jewelry stores and uh, men's clothing and all kinds of stuff in these abandoned, soaked-up windows. And they just built false fronts on them with uh with some prop merchandise and uh and filmed for about about a week uh brought in a uh, uh a passenger car and parked it in front of the abandoned train station painted the painted the uh painted it up so it looked like it was brand new and then mm-hmm. after the week they just went in and cleaned the whole thing off and it was back to being a ghost town again <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know it, uh, it was good to, uh good to hear more about your um hear more about you um but uh let's go ahead and talk about the film that you had me watch for the first time the living daylights one day men will look back and say that i gave birth to the 20th century you're not going to see the 20th century that girl must be very talented your vision's about me most definitely believe me my interest in her is purely professional the way that she was done that cries out for a man of your talent. Whoever she was, I must have scared the living daylights out of her. Oh, yes. Yeah, what did, what did you think? What was your first impression? How, let, let, before we start, what's um, what's your Bond background like? Um, well, actually, that's, um, that was uh, one reason why I decided to do this episode, because most of the time I, you know, I, I find a guest and then I find ask them a film that they're passionate about. Um, and then we use that as, as kind of a baseline. But with the new James Bond movie coming out, uh, No Time to Die, which is uh, Daniel Craig's final Bond movie, I thought that that was a perfect excuse to expand my uh, Bond viewing experience because I've uh, this will have been my fourth James Bond movie ever. Um, I've I watched. Um, I always forget which one it is. I think the world is not enough. Okay. Uh, I that was the first one that I watched. Um, wow, that's an interesting or, introduction. I've no, heard. it's 
I think it was Tomorrow Never Dies. It was the one with Holly Berry, Pierce Brosnan and Holly Berry. Yeah, I, I think always that's, forget. that's Tomorrow Never Dies, yeah, I believe. Yeah, uh, I saw that one in theaters, and that was my introduction to James Bond. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then I started doing this podcast, and, um, you know, my second one was Goldfinger. Oh, okay, yeah. And, uh... and then I did uh, another another podcast, the, the Lambcast, where they had a movie of the month, and it was, um, oh, I don't, I forget the name. It was one of Roger Moore's. Um, let's see, uh, Live and Let Die, Man with the Golden Gun, uh, Moonraker. Uh, um, Octopussy, uh, for your eyes only. Um, I, sh- I think those are all of them. I think it was the first one because it, it was the, Live and Let Die. Yeah. Paul McCartney music. Yeah, it was yeah, set, set in the Bayou uh, with uh, Jane Seymour, um, Yafit Koto. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh... uh, but. You know that that yeah. was. Um, so you've seen Pierce Brosnan and Roger Moore and Sean Connery as the different Bonds so far. Right. So I, I wanted to watch another. Um, no, it was the the Spy Who Loved Me. Oh, the Spy Who Loved Me. Okay. That yeah, 1977. Uh, yeah, uh, Marvin Hamlish soundtrack. Barbara Bach, Mrs. Ringo Starr, um, and uh, that's an interesting one. It's and it it falls more into the formula of uh, as Bond movies. Um, I don't want to say matured, but as they became kind of calcified into a uh, a set formula, Bond doesn't really he's never really in danger, but he's kind of walked through uh, the plot and he just has to get to the end. He doesn't really have to solve any problems. He just kind of uh, goes along with whatever's happening. But uh, interesting, very very 1977 disco era kind <laughs> of Bond film, and that beautiful opening with the uh, uh, with the ski the ski jump and yeah. uh, opening up a parachute. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, you know, I, I have well, technically I have three James Bond actors that's that I haven't seen yet, but you know, I'm kind of um, not not in a big of a hurry to to watch the uh, George Lazenby one. Um, uh. So I. I, it was between Timothy Dalton and Daniel Craig. And so I reached out to you because I know that uh, for a little while there, you were working on the 007 Minutes. Yeah, I'm, I'm with my, my co-host, Mark, who unfortunately, uh, we ran to a bit of a snag because he's he's been doing some work for Eon Productions, the, the Bond company. And so he, <laughs> he kind of wound up with, he can't really talk about anything now. So we, we went on a, a kind of an enforced hiatus and I may... Resurrected. One of those conflict of interest things. Yeah, yeah. So we, we really couldn't do stuff. And it's a shame because we were hoping after we finished the movie that we had been working on that the next one would be on Her Majesty's Secret Service because uh, Mark is really good friends with uh, George Lazenby. And um, George is hilarious. He is one of, you know, he's Australian, which is like naturally funny, but he, <laughs> he, he, He's just he has these turns of phrases that are that are stunning. And uh, we were hoping to have him as like a like kind of like Billy Campbell, just have him as a semi co-host uh, to to walk through uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. But uh, oh, well, it's again, we, I just have phenomenally bad luck with uh, people who play Bond, Timothy Dalton. <laughs> oh, come on. We, we have yet to do George, but uh, we're not done. But in the words of another Bond movie, never say never. It may it may happen that Mark comes back on the show. Yeah, that's. And that that would definitely be something um, 
worth listening to and uh that that sounds like it, it would be an, an exciting project um so i i reached out to you because of that and then you know i i gave you the the choice to the if if you wanted to talk about a timothy dalton or a daniel craig movie and then you chose the living daylights so what made you decide that that was the one that you wanted to talk about the most this this was dalton at his daltonness dalton <laughs> daltoniest he uh it, this was just before he uh filmed the rocketeer he would he would come out of this show and then then go on so just picture he became neville sinclair after this <laughs> movie um it was interesting seeing dalton this is his first go at it um i like him in, i i liked him as as bond uh this is his least um he wasn't being uh, he wasn't he wasn't like much of a womanizer in this movie he was more of this was his job he was a job he 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 was a job uh, his job was he was licensed to kill and he was a spy and he was supposed to work for uh her majesty and solving problems around the world um it was an interesting uh cold war era um you know this is all happening around the same time as hunt for red october and things like that uh, it, it's definitely it's, it's a cold war era film about uh soviet nato relations um it's surprising in that it didn't have much of uh uh you know sexual connotations i mean he has almost a platonic relationship with mariam diabo who's the female interest in the movie and uh it told more like it worked more like a spy thriller and getting uh uh they were the the plot revolves around the uh, supposed defection of a soviet agent and who turns out that we it turns out he's not only a double agent, but he's he's working for uh, a, he's working with Joe Don Baker, a private contractor to uh, steal money from the, the Soviets and have the Soviets blame the British uh, for uh, for this uh, double cross that was going on. And I thought it was a it was an interesting it was an interesting plot. The uh, there wasn't another, you know, megalomaniac set on uh, world domination. It was just a. It was more of a heist movie than anything else. Yeah. And uh, I enjoyed the just the little the little moments that were taken. Uh, the idea of uh, killing a cellist came from I believe it came from one of the Fleming books, which was titled For Your Eyes Only. There was one of the short stories in there about uh, shooting a cellist who was an assassin. Um, it has uh, <laughs> it has the very worst Felix Leiter. There's. I mean, there's, there's been so many Felix Leiters, everybody from Jack Lord to David Hedison. Um, but the uh, the Felix Leiter that's in this movie is just heinous. Um, and <laughs> I mean, he's just like TV level quality. Uh, Joe Don Baker, uh, I find I find him hilarious because he's he always seems like he was up the night before memorizing his lines. And he doesn't he doesn't really deliver the lines. He just he says the next thing that he's supposed to say after Timothy Dalton says his line. So it is, um, uh, it, it, it has a lot of, and of course it has John Rice Davis in it as the, as the foil, the Russian, the Soviet foil. And where they do that interesting place where two enemies find themselves, you know, ha- having common ground against uh, a common foe. Um, so I, I enjoyed that, uh, John Rice Davis playing a serious role, uh, acting very well. Uh, in that, and uh, you know, gosh, you can't you can't not help but love the guy after Indiana Jones. Yeah, um, I've I've seen John Reese Davies in a ton of stuff. He's been in so much stuff from you know from high level stuff like you know he's probably uh, at this point 
best known for the Lord of the Rings. He was Gimli. Um, yeah. I, I always remembered him. He was uh, one of the characters in Sliders, um, and and also in in terms of like superhero movies, he he was actually the kingpin in a TV movie uh, from the uh, Incredible Hulk. Oh, okay. They did yeah. a they did a TV movie that was like a backdoor pilot for Daredevil, which never came to pass, and and that uh, and he played kingpin in that. Yeah, he he just has an enormous range and that that voice. I mean, second only to James Earl Jones for this depth of he he seems like operatic almost. Yeah, which is probably why they were having him singing singing Gilbert and Sullivan songs in uh, Indiana Jones. <laughs> <laughs> he uh yeah, I mean it, it's it's such a the the movie comes across very much like getting back to basics as to what James Bond's job is. Uh, starting the movie, we start at the rocket Gibraltar, and um. You know, he's doing a training mission with other double O agents as uh, someone's trying to kill, kill the double O, uh, the double O's. And he has yeah, to, I uh, thought the, I thought the opening sequence was a fun one because it, it was, you know, you're just jumped, jumped into this and, you know, it's this, um, this training exercise and they're using paintball guns and then yeah. they, they have and, somebody jump in that's, using actual live animation ammunition to take them out and everybody else is like you know not realizing that their game has been infiltrated yeah yeah i mean it's just a beautiful thing and it gets back to more of the hardcore fleming rather than i mean if you you've seen the spy who loved me where you're having these giant you know like a a ship eating ship that Mm -hmm. uh that you know is, is trying to start a war and stuff like that um and these crazy megalomaniacs and it was, it was all getting just beyond silly. Uh, well, and you've seen Goldfinger, which is uh, the, the ending of Goldfinger is uh, 007 is handcuffed to an atom bomb while a, uh, a Korean uh, uh, martial arts master is, is coming to attack him in Fort Knox. And it's just like, okay, this is a little, where do you go from here? Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's, it, it's, I mean, and there's been stuff like Moonraker where they have a fight on a space station and stuff. It just, it just was getting, it was losing. They had no place to go, but getting back to basics and making it about what it's like working for MI6 in the British, you know, working in the British MI6. And that but made, even though it's toned down in terms of the the fantastic, it's still it's still a very big movie. Too. Yeah, yeah, and there and there's nice callbacks in it. I mean, if you've seen the entirety of the bond film there's a there's a scene where uh bond is fighting joe don baker's character and uh he has his walter ppk which has eight shots in it and he fires at joe don baker who has a a gun that has like an armor shield in front of it and and he shoots at him and uh empties his pistol at joe don baker and joe don baker says the line you've had your eight and now i'll have my 80 that's a direct callback from the original movie uh doc I'm sorry, the second movie uh, from Russia with Love, where um, uh, a guy is shooting at Bond, James, John, uh, Sean Connery's Bond. He shoots at him with a Smith and Wesson, and he said, "That's a Smith and Wesson, and you've had your six. And and Connery pulls out his Walther and shoots the guy because the guy's gun was empty. So it's just it, you know, it's it's little. They they put little tidbits in for the Bond fanatics, but it's still as a general popcorn movie, it, it, it works well. Um, I, the the only weak spot in it, I, I think, although um, I mean Mary Miriam Diablo is an accomplished actress, I 
didn't get the feeling. I don't think she felt the role or she understood her role. Um, and maybe it was bad direction, but uh, I thought she was kind of the weak spot in there. Um, yeah, I know you mentioned that that it felt like more of a platonic relationship, and yeah, and I I definitely get that, especially. I mean, it doesn't help that in the first half of the movie, it, he is actively trying to make it a platonic relationship because the idea is that, you know, she is um, she's already in a relationship with uh, Yorgi. The, yeah. The defective, uh, the defecting uh, Russian agent. Yeah, Jurgen Krab play, plays him. He's he's always the bad guy. I mean, it's, it's the he was in so many movies back back during the eighties and nineties where he was the bad guy or the, the comedic bad guy. It, it, it I think he had more of um uh he he was like um. He was the he was the bad guy in the Fugitive. That's probably where you know him from the Harrison Ford movie. He was the uh, the other doctor that that framed uh, Richard Kimball. But he's always vaguely the inept. He was like the Major Burns from Mash. He was he was the the inept uh, villain. And I think that's maybe that that's the problem here is that he's he's got maybe he's just got the face of of an inept villain. <laughs> um, I one of the one of my favorite parts of this entire movie is the matching fight scenes in the uh there's a scene where there's a uh, a soviet uh cargo plane full of heroin or op- raw opium mm-hmm. and uh there's a fist fight on a the, the the back door of the cargo plane opens up and uh, uh bond and the uh, the heavy that's uh that's in the film that you know this robot killer guy the jaws of the or the odd job or you know the, this current villain um are, are having a fist fight or a knife fight on a cargo net that is uh, hanging out of the back of the, the the plane, and they do some nice matching shots with live action that was you know filmed on the back of a real cargo plane, and then there's it, it's intercut with close-ups of them with a beautiful background of the mountains of Afghanistan flying by, and and it's not green screen; they're just using a large mural behind uh, a, a live set that they were they were on, and uh, I thought the matching was great on that. It, it amazing film work. Uh, without relying on green screen or CGI, which was yeah, uh, that, quite... I, I thought that was a you know a really gorgeous and uh, entertaining action set piece. Yeah, uh, I did enjoy the heavy. I thought the heavy was uh, was great. He uh, he came across as you know very uh, uh, you know as, as a menace. There's a yeah, there's he, an he early... was stoic but also menacing and. He had just enough of a personality where he wasn't just like a a personalityless um, you know, driving force. Yeah, and, and and that was I think that was the year. He was also he was the he was the bad guy in or one of the bad guys, one of uh, Alan Rickman's henchmen in uh, Die Hard. And he's the the tall blonde guy, and just he has that you know that Aryan. Uh, uh, you know, SS agent looked to him. He's just very imperious looking. His face kind of looks like a skull. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I did, I did enjoy the, there was another close fight scene uh, that he had with a, uh, with an MI6 agent in a, in a safe house uh, at the, at the, be, at the beginning of the show after the move, after the, uh, uh, the bad guy had supposedly defected. Uh, he had broken into the safe house and has and a very close as a milkman. Yes, exactly. With a pair of killer headphones that he was strangling people with. Um, but he has a great I mean, one of the 
best things about the fight scene is it looks so evenly matched. And the MI6 agent at the beginning seems to be getting the upper hand and the guy wins just by a fluke of hitting the guy at the right time. But he looked like he, he was almost a match for, for this, uh, this guy. Um, I was impressed by a nice close, close camera fighting instead of having, you know, it wasn't like a, like watching a karate movie. It was just this very, very visceral fight. Yeah, the, the one thing I remember from that site, that that fight scene, was there was a pot of boiling water, and yes, you know, I was waiting for that to, to come into play, and I was slightly disappointed that it it just you know goes against the wall and doesn't and yeah, basically you, misses. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was fascinating to watch. I just uh, I I enjoy good choreography in a fight scene, and. Uh, yeah, very, yeah, good all around on that. I, it was. I, I thought it was a great choice using uh, "Aha" as the uh, for the title music. They did a did a great job. Good lyrics. Uh, yeah, I think it was John. That was yeah. You know, um, after that, the the cold open, I guess. Uh, whenever it got to the the classic James Bond opening credits, and you know, I I heard a "Aha" and I'm like, yeah, th- this definitely came out in the eighties. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was. Just, just great. You know, they had between uh, they had uh, Aha, and they also had Chrissy Hine from the Pretenders doing some of the music there. That she did the end title stuff. Um, but yeah, very it very much sets up the 80s, 90s, and that was you know that was a big honor to, at at the time. To, if you had a, I and mean, it still is today. I mean, Adele and people like that, Madonna have have all had to, Paul McCartney and Wings. It was it was something to get picked for title music on a Bond film. Yeah, and. One other thing that I noticed that's, that felt very 80s was, you know, this is a, a PG movie, and there is that one scene of, you know, 80s PG boobs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just just a flash, just enough to, you know, they'll be blocking it out on the on the home edition. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it, it's, but a surprising lack of sexuality in the film it's, it's yeah. rare for a rare for a bond film and there were i mean barbara brock barbara broccoli tubby broccoli's uh widow uh was the was one of the producers of it and she always insisted on having the bond girls because that's part of it and the only time i saw the bond girls in this whole thing was uh there's a scene oh this is one of the first uses of the of parkour too there's a when uh, when Bond is escaping in Tangiers, he's uh, he just supposedly shot John Reese Davis, and then climbs up onto the rooftops, and they have some beautiful parkour where he's grabbing onto uh, television antennas and swinging across roofs <laughs> and things. There's one brief yeah. scene where he goes across a courtyard, and for some reason, there's 20 beautiful women in evening gowns standing around, and it's like there you go, and you know they probably had a a pictorial in Playboy or, or, or something for that month, the girls of uh, the living daylights, but they had, they had to have that, that five seconds of the Bond girls in this movie. Um, yeah. I, I do think it, it, it is kind of weird and interesting that, that the majority, I would say like in this film, the majority of the seduction between James Bond and uh, the cellist was basically a, the, uh, the carnival scene, which that, yeah. that felt very, like almost teen movie. Yeah, yeah, it was it was very odd to see Bond getting excited about being in a Ferris wheel with uh with some blonde woman and it just, you know, the the most they did was kiss. Um it it, it was and of course and they're the typical in every Bond movie there's a what they call a sacrificial lamb 
Thomas Wheatley as Saunders, the uh, his his agent, his man in Vienna. I believe he uh, was. The, um, was he the one? I believe he was 008. Uh, no, he was Saunders. He was the um, he was the liaison at. Uh, he's the one that gets killed by uh, the the sliding glass door. At, uh, yeah, that, that's at who Tri- I was thinking of. But I thought oh, okay, they yeah. referred to him as 008 uh, at, at one point. I could I, be wrong. I I don't think he's a double O agent. I, th- I thought he was uh, he was like a station chief or something. I'm I'm not sure, but I no. I I, just, I I have his name down as Saunders. But uh, he's good as a kind of a nebbishy organization man. That and and giving him that little bit of poignancy that uh, he got everything together for Bond. Bonded he'd done what Bond had asked for him, and they were no longer. Um, at odds with each other. And, and the last thing that Bond says to him is thanks. And so, you know, Saunders earns the respect of Bond only to be killed by a sliding glass door. Um, yeah. And, and this also had several moments of uh, Bond bucking authority where yeah. uh, he's told to do one thing, but he doesn't think that it sounds quite right. And so he goes off on his own and then he finds out the, the reality of the situation. Because he's uh, he's under the impression, I, I mean, it, it's all orchestrated by uh, the the defecting agents and the uh, the American arms dealer um, that they're trying to uh, pin John Rhys Davies as as the pat as a patsy and convince the British to send James Bond to kill him. Yeah, and, uh, which they they both think that that sounds at odds. Uh, at the at the beginning, and that's what causes him to investigate. And there is a a lot of um, you know twists and turns, and and I really did enjoy where everything went, even, even though there was a a bit of a moment, I think um, about a third of the way through, like I guess right before they they kind of revealed their hand, uh, or where they revealed exactly what was going on, because. You know, initially you think that this guy's defecting, and then he gets captured by what you think is the the KGB. Um, but it turns out that they're working together, and that the cellist is an assassin, but she was firing blanks, and she's his girlfriend, and just all this stuff, which in 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 the wrong hands it can be, you know, very convoluted and confusing, and and it was like I think it was right around that carnival date where I was a little bit confused over what was going on because James Bond was was telling her that that he was friends with the, the defecting agent, yeah, and that he was working with him to help get her out of Russia and meet back up with him. But instead, Bond was using that as a ploy to get information out of her. Yeah, I, I mean, and there's so much, and there's so many tropes that go through this movie. I, I keep thinking when uh, uh, her her boyfriend, the uh, the defector or the supposed defector, uh, con- she she contacts him when they're in Tangiers, and she uses chloral hydrate, the legendary uh, knockout drops, uh, in his in his uh, vodka martini shake, and that's third. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know he's he's about to pass out, and he wants to shoot the bad guy. It's like that's from every. That's from every detective movie of the '40s. There's always the chloral hydrate scene where the where the the, the detective or whoever it is, is has been drugged and is desperately trying to kill the enemy before they they take him to whatever you know evil lair that they're going to. 
Um, uh, it, it, interesting. Uh, speaking of that, it's you know eighties eighties nineties film. Um, interesting seeing uh, Art Malik in there as the head of the Mujahideen, um, and uh, uh, the the uh, the British are teamed up with uh, the the Mujahideen against uh, the Soviets. That they were the good guys uh, in Afghanistan at that at that point. So I it doesn't quite fly in a you know it it, it doesn't have thirty years. 30 years changes things a lot. Yeah. Um, but uh, Art Malik is, is great. I remember him in a couple of British TV series, Jewel in the Crown. And um, he, uh, he was in a, he was the bad guy in uh, true lies uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger and uh, had some really, really great moments in that. Um, yeah. But, I, uh, I, I really did enjoy how his character was introduced as just this like disheveled, um, you know, Afghanistani, um, person in a, in a jail cell with you know the scraggly beard and just like um and all, and all the guards are making fun of him you know you know maybe Allah will rescue you or you know stuff like that and then yeah they get him back to um and then bond helps him escape as he escapes and then you know he's clean shaven and, and then he has this this very like um high class british accent yeah, he went to Oxford and things like that, and he said he likes theatrics because he was in, he was he performed at Oxford. It's just like a oh, good grief. <laughs> and and then the uh, the the tag at the end of the the uh, the movie where he's at the uh, Vienna Opera House and um, Miriam Diablo is performing, and he just shows up with all these guys wearing bandoliers of bullets and things like that. And he said, "Sorry, we had a little trouble at the airport." So it's just, <laughs> it's just a, a a pleasant pleasant uh, thoughts of days gone by. Um, but all in all, I I'd, I'd give that, that movie was a a solid a solid entry in the bond uh, uh repertoire i thought i uh i thought dalton did a, a great turn as bond it's a difficult uh it's a difficult role to master and um i think he did a better job than say roger moore roger moore was always being roger moore but i thought that timothy dalton tried to be bond in this film and uh i think he did he did the the role uh good work yeah i i really enjoyed the watching this film and i did there were times whenever it felt very 80s uh there there was a, a occasional moments of you know where i thought the comedy went maybe just a little bit too far uh but for the most part you know i i enjoyed the the intrigue all the all the different um um locales uh, that they went yep. to uh, because you know they they do I think like a lot of Bond movies, they they do a lot of location hopping. Yeah, it's it's mostly a travelogue. I think that's what they you know it's the the lure of the of the exotic, and I think that's that's always been the case of of how they how they shoot these things. Uh, lately, I think it's been more into uh, how complicated the fighting can be. It, it kind of turns. I'm I'm surprised Tom Cruise has never done a turn as Bond because I keep thinking when I see the Daniel Craig era, I keep thinking this is like watching um, Jack Reacher or, or something like that. It just seems like a lot more jumping and fighting rather than uh, the storyline kind of stuff. <clears throat> yeah, I'm I am curious. I'm not sure. I still haven't decided if I'm going to, um, you know, the, one of the the problems with having a podcast like this is there are times whenever I want to watch a movie on my own um, just because I'm interested in it and I'm, I have to weigh the options. It's like, do I want to just watch this movie to watch this movie or would I rather 
find somebody who wants to talk about it and watch it so I can use it as an episode of the podcast. <laughs> but I I am curious to to watch some of the the Daniel Craig James Bond movies because I you know I've heard I the majority of them are very good especially I think the only one that that tends to get some negative things is Quantum of Solace. Yeah, it, 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 that is kind of a a little bit. Not I won't say a snooze because you don't have, you you don't have the opportunity to snooze in these things. It's just a little bit of uh, audio overload. I think would be the best way to describe it. Just a little bit too much stuff going on and not enough story. Um, but the his first outing, the the remake of Casino Royale, I thought was a great job. He introduced himself as the character quite well. Uh, you got the you got the terms of how he saw Bond, and uh, I thought it was very visceral. And uh, yeah, I'd be interested in hearing your opinion of, of uh, Casino Royale. Maybe if you do that on a future episode, I'd love to hear what you thought of uh, of Craig's Casino Royale. Yeah, sure. Um, but I think that's about all I have to say about the the Living Daylights. You know, thanks for choosing this movie. I, I did really enjoy it. Um, but we're going to take a quick break and whenever we come back, we're going to have, we're going to talk about the film that I had you watch for the first time from hell. This podcast is a proud member of the lamb podcasting network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. All right, Kristen, I am so excited that you've decided to do a podcast with me, but what are we going to do a podcast about? There's so many other movie podcasts. We got to do something original. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of Disney movies. What about something like that? That's just kid stuff. What do we want to do that for? Did you know that The Avengers is a Disney movie or that Pulp Fiction is a Disney movie? Pulp Fiction is not a Disney movie. It's technically owned by Miramax, which is part of Disney. We are still going to talk about the Disney animated movies, though, right? I thought you said that was kid stuff. Well, you know, I've got two kids. i got to be a good dad and stuff. So be sure to subscribe to the Walt Set Me Podcast, where we discuss the various subsidiaries of the Walt Disney Studios, including the animated movies. It's available on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. And I swear, it's not kid stuff. From Hell came out in 2001, and it was the first comic book movie to be based on an Alan Moore comic, uh, based on the graphic novel of the same name that was released in serial form through from 1989 through 1998 with artist Eddie Campbell. Um, you know, it, it starred uh, Johnny Depp and, and Heather Graham, and um, you know I I had the list of uh, different comic book movies that I haven't covered yet and uh, and you chose this one because you said that you were familiar with the the graphic novel and I, I did warn you a little bit that it that it's um, is is often referred or is often thought of as a more mediocre film um, but I guess let me ask you to, to start off what did you think about it I I had a couple of a couple of thoughts on it the I wondered at first I, I I really should have had – well, my wife's already read uh, From Hell, too. I, I would like to hear from somebody who hasn't read the graphic novel what their opinion on the movie was because the, the graphic novel, if you if you look at it, there's a um, – it's it's basically in three parts, and it talks about um, – the, the, the storyline is trying to figure out why all, why all these prostitutes are being killed in Whitechapel. Um, the uh, – uh, Aberlein, the, the detective – 
uh, his search for the meanings of why why these uh, murders are taking place. The second part of the book is a very uh, comprehensive set of footnotes explaining other books that Moore used to uh, justify having uh, his storyline. He talked about Liz Stride and Polly Nichols and all the other uh, Kate Eddowes, all the people that got, got murdered. Uh, he goes deep into their backgrounds and you can, I mean, every, every page that you're reading, every panel, you can go back and look up what the Masonic meaning was for this, where this, where this happened, what, you know, and they had maps and things. The third part of the book is about how the, the story of Jack the Ripper has affected culture, how different people jumped into the history and Moore himself included, uh, jumped into the history to try to solve the riddle of who Jack the Ripper was and what the what the theories were and whether this was a royal killing, whether, you know, the Masons were involved with the different meanings of uh, of the different squirreled messages. And uh, did you know, what was this about to hide a uh, uh, an uh, illegitimate pregnancy in the royal family? And what Moore comes up with at the end of his of this third this third part of his book is that it's like Rashomon. Everybody has a different story. Everybody has a different the the meaning is so clouded. You know, we have a century behind us, so many conflicting uh, auto, uh, testimonies, and a lack of physical evidence that uh, the story turns into like a Rorschach test of what do you you know it could be anything uh, that killed them. It could have been you know, imaginary beasts for that matter. There's no, there's no proof on who did what. So all we have to do is try to piece together the different stories and find which one is most entertaining. And, uh, that was, you know, it, it was intriguing, very, uh, uh, it's thick. It's like eating cheesecake. I mean, you just kind of do a small <laughs> piece at a time. It's, it's very rich, a very rich background and a lot to, you don't just, page through this page after page you you wind up with your fingers in two different spots in the book and swapping back and forth saying well what did that mean and you look in the back and read the footnote um yeah and I, course, I would actually be curious to read it because i i haven't read it myself like oh, okay uh, with with my with my website my my entry point is always the movies first and uh, you know occasionally i'll i'll get into the comic book afterwards um but I, I tend I haven't done that too many times. I, I think the I think the biggest one that I really did was I, I did um, read Watchmen after okay. after seeing that movie. But oh, okay. I, I so you did that. that way. And, yeah. Yeah, and, and this and of course another more another more book, and you know how thick he gets into it. And every I mean I think every single frame, every panel that he had that he has in his book is well researched and is there for a reason. And that is, I think that was the problem that uh, the Hughes brothers had in making this film is that I think the book is pretty well unfilmable, which is why, uh, and just a spoiler alert here, that they they added a happy ending to this movie. I mean, sort of a happy ending. Yeah, sort of. Not, not one entire. character, but another, yeah. another character escapes. And, um, but it's just this weird addition of a happy ending that was that was very peculiar and yeah, that, there's uh, wanted... a lot of weird choices that, that they yeah. made with this this film because you know the about the only thing that i did know about the comic book was that um aberdeen uh, johnny depp's character was a very minor 
role in the comic book, and, and most of it was actually from the point of view of the, the Jack the Ripper. Yeah, and you know, Sir, uh, Sir William Gull, uh, Ian Holmes' character in this movie, has a much a much more direct role in the film in in the, in the I'm sorry in the book than he than he did in the in the in the film uh also his assistant Netley who's kind of like the Igor of <laughs> Dr. Gull he 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 picks up these women and takes them to their to their doom um Netley has a lot of stuff to do with the masons and things like that and it's just a lot more um the, you know they, there's pieces of there's pieces of Moore's story that they wanted to bring into it but they couldn't they couldn't fit it all in. Um, a lot of a lot of the book, I would say even the majority of the book, talks about Masonic symbolism and uh, different things like the placement of the uh, uh, the church in Whitechapel, the chapel of Whitechapel, uh, that was built by Christopher Wren, who was a major player in the Masonic lodges of uh, London. And it, why things happened around Christopher Wren? He has his. If you look at the the spire of his church, is not a typical steeple. It's uh, a rep- reproduction of the obelisk, which is down on the Thames, and is of points of a five pointed star. Which is anyway, it's it, it's like it's like reading uh, Kennedy conspiracy books. There's all these different conspiracies about Jack the Ripper and. Uh, Moore spends a lot of time in his book diving into it, which is great in a book, mm-hmm. but I don't think you could tell it in a two-hour movie. So they kind of skipped over that part and made it like, well, how are all these people getting murdered and and why you know why are these women dying? And, yeah, and, and and I remember the first time that I watched this movie, it, it did the the one thing that it did do was it, it re-sparked my interest in the actual Jack the Ripper, and you know it made me look up. Um, current theories and uh, at the time which I, I think this was maybe five or six years ago whenever i saw it the first time it had there had been an investigation just you know one year previous to that where they had claimed that they you know did dna testing and they had definitive proof of <laughs> who jack the ripper was but i, I was you know, very skeptical of that because, you know, it wasn't corroborated anywhere else. It was just in this one, this one article that I read, but, you know, even in, I guess that would have been 2014, 2015, you know, people are still trying to solve this case that that was in uh, 1888. Yeah. And and the, I mean, and then they added in that, that thing with Johnny Depp being um, having like ESP or something. He's like a clairvoyant or something. It could feel yeah, he, he basically, emanations. Yeah, yeah, he was basically, you know, he would go on an, an opium high and he would get visions, which were, at least within the movie, they were mostly true. Yeah, and that, that, that wasn't that wasn't part of Moore's book. Uh, but you know, again, the the object of the exercise here is the Hughes brothers were trying to entertain us for two hours and two minutes. Mm-hmm. So you have to just cut them some slack and say, well, they're trying to tell a story, and you're you're supposed to be invested in um, Heather, uh, Heather Graham staying alive and Johnny Depp saving her life. And uh, I guess you know, mission accomplished. So that's that's the, <laughs> that's the the role of the story. But I anyway, mean, it's it's and. Gosh, they had an all-star cast. I mean, Sir Ian Richardson, Robbie Coltrane, um, and you know Johnny Depp and Heather Graham. They're all you know big, big names uh, doing this stuff. I'm impressed by the fact that 
their casting director managed to sign all these people up for it. And, and this um, was uh, right after Johnny Depp had done Sleepy Hollow. So this this is maybe not the peak of his career, but the, he was he was running high at this point. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know it it's uh, uh I this. This has to have been after. This must have been after *Menace to Society*, right? The, the Hughes brothers did *Menace to Society*, so I think the. Uh, yeah, the this you know, was 2001. Okay, yeah, *Menace to Society* was back in the 90s, sometime. Um, but uh, let me see. Actually, uh, did, 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 uh, ah, here it is, *Menace to Society* 1993. So yeah, I, I mean, and thinking of hiring the Hughes brothers to do this, I mean, mostly they did. The 90s version of black exploitation films, they did Magnus Society, Dead Presidents, American Pimp, th- things like that. So it, it, I wouldn't pick them as the ones to do a, uh, stories about British uh, mass murderers, but they did, you know, an adequate job. I thought it was it was adequate. Um, you know, they hired pop popular top notch talent so the they couldn't help but get great uh, performances out of all of them. Yeah. I think the weak the weakest part was the screenplay. The adaptation I thought was poor. Yeah, I am, and I agree with you there. And and also, you know, I I wasn't fully sold on on Heather Graham. Um, I don't think her um, her lower class British accents helped either. Yeah, yeah, you know, it was a real Mary Poppins kind of Cockney or or uh, you know my my fair lady kind of thing. It just doesn't wasn't flowing. Um, and it's um. It felt very unnatural, and and I, I think one other thing that I noticed is, like, whenever she said she mentioned that she's from Ireland, it's like, right, whenever she says Ireland, it's like she says Ireland in an Irish accent. Yeah, <laughs> just just to just to point it out, yeah, um, you know, and this, I mean, and this the 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 guy that um, one of the guys that they had hired to to do this, I think he may have done a little bit of polish on the thing. Uh, Terry Hayes uh, did uh, screenwriting for Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and uh, you know that's that's a great screenplay. But I mean, it's this, this as I said before, I think this is an almost impossible movie to adapt from the novel. It's it's like taking you know it's, it's like taking a uh, a textbook and turning it into a story. So they had a they had to fit in the story. It's like, well, here's here's two characters. We can get his last victim and Averline, have them fall in love, and then have her have him try to save her life from uh, from the Ripper or what, whoever's ordered her death. And, and yet they also added a bunch of really fascinating details to this because basically all of the the murders that all the Jack the Ripper murders and the all the wounds except for the last one they are all exactly the same as what the actual um wounds were like all, all, yeah. the, all the victims they all had wounds in the exact same places the timeline was shifted around and then the the final murder was dialed back just a little bit because they, yeah, they thought was, that that was, was too much, gruesome yeah it was pretty much i mean it, they were, the last one was pretty much chopped to ribbons. It was nothing, nothing left. Um, and you know, it was, it was nice that they picked up, they picked up different uh, parts of it, uh, parts of the book. I did enjoy. They they dropped in uh, uh, the Elephant Man makes a makes a guest appearance briefly, which as he does in the uh, uh, in the in the Moore book. 
um, I was I was impressed that they they would add that part in because it looked expensive. It looked very. I mean, they had to set up a whole set and they had to build the build the makeuping uh, in for him in full color, and uh, uh, yeah, that was and just it was a, very, it was a very a throwaway brief scene. Yeah, it, yeah, it was a throwaway scene, but for what they had it set up for, it was just astonishing. And, um, and they added the detail where they they initially introduced him as Joseph Merrick. And yes, he, they were corrected to say John Merrick because yeah. you know his name is actually Joseph Merrick, but the doctor that that was studying him kind of forced the the name John onto him. Yeah, yeah, it uh, you know just little little bits like that stepped it up a notch in terms of you know they did their homework on that, um, and of course, but uh, again, they, I I don't think they could fit all the all the Masonic stuff into it. There there's long long passages about what the different um uh, uh, meanings were in uh in the different uh they, they do they do have a brief scene of an initiation where they talk about that your heart has to be cut out and your fingers cut off and you're thrown a, a chain's length from the shore if you ever reveal the secrets and a lot of the women were killed in that manner um it was it was, it was funny though i I've, I've watched a bunch of jack the ripper movies and at the beginning when we were watching it, I turned to my wife. I said, this can't be a real Jack the Ripper movie because you don't hear that two-toned police whistle when somebody's been murdered. They always would have a murder <laughs> and then they'd blow the two-tone whistle. And right after I, right after I, <laughs> I said that, there's a police officer shows up and blows the two-tone whistle and my <laughs> wife just points at the screen. See, this is a real Jack the Ripper film. Um, do, do you have a favorite Ripper movie? I don't know if... It, um, I... I honestly am am not sure because I I'm, I know I've seen a handful of them. I I think most often, I think most of the Jack the Ripper stories that I'm aware of are actually more sci-fi TV shows. Yeah, I, I was thinking if you're talking about time loops, I would I would consider a Time After Time to be one of the best uses of Jack the Ripper with uh, David Warner uh, being chased by Malcolm McDowell across time. Um, and and I I know that there's a two tone <laughs> police police whistle in that movie too, but um, uh, but I I will bring up um you know and uh, tying it in with the, the su with superheroes there was a uh, a um else like the first Elseworlds uh, DC comic book they made into an animated movie just a few years ago Gotham by Gaslight, hmm. uh, and that's basically the Jack the Ripper story within as like an alternate universe Batman um, where Batman is and various Batman characters are put into this time period uh, with him um, basically trying to solve the Jack the Ripper, a Jack the Ripper-esque character. Oh, so it's kind of like uh, Marvel 1602 is um, similar that I uh, just, you have, you have character superhero characters, but they're in a, in a different time period of uh, with different origin stories or, earlier on yeah um i'll have to look at that one um but yeah it's jack the ripper is a fascinating character he's become like an archetype that you want to uh i, I mean i think every every serial killer movie that you see has some elements of jack the jack the ripper in terms of storytelling you know um silence of the lambs that kind of stuff or um yeah uh i've uh, Boston Strangler, even though these are based on other mass murderers, the elements of following the uh, the victim's story, the perpetrator's story, and the police investigation of that story, it becomes 
almost a genre to itself. Yeah, I think there, there's, it's just that so many different elements all came together at the same time because he would, you know, with him being this uh, serial killer with this, um, you know, this, these gruesome murders, but they were, you know, ritualistic. Plus, you add in that's the, um, you know, kind of the birth of like the modern policing with um, the the beginnings of forensic techniques. Yeah, and, and yeah, and, and things. I mean, there were there were things that they were trying that were you know we look back at it as ridic- ridiculous, but they were trying scientific processes. They, they, I mean, they, there was one one of the murder victims. They actually took a camera to take a picture of the back of their eyes because there was a, a belief that uh, when you died, the the last image of whatever you saw would be imprinted on the back of your eyes. So scientific or not, they tried. Well, that seems like a, an, a logical approach. So they, they tried that and didn't, didn't get anything out of it. But, <laughs> yeah, um, to, to try to maybe get an image of the, the killer yeah. um, captured in, in the, the victim's eye. Yeah, that, um, uh, stuff like that is is just really fascinating. In, in general, I, I enjoyed the film. I uh, I thought the I thought the ending was a bit of a cop out. Um, it's it, you know I I think somebody had to die and they just had to choose whether it was going to be Heather Graham or uh, or Johnny Depp. Yeah, I, and, I did like the kind of the 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 fake out a little bit. Because they they do introduce this um, this basically French prostitute uh, who comes into the group of prostitutes near the end of the film, and then you know whenever um, whenever Doctor Gull comes in for the final move for the final murder, we don't see her face at all, and then they they show like. Uh, Johnny Depp's character picks up a tuft of hair, and you see that the hair is the the light brown and not red hair. So yeah. he realizes that it, it wasn't um, Heather Graham's uh, Mary Kelly who was murdered, and they have the the handoff of the note. I I did kind of like the the concept that they were star-crossed lovers, where Johnny Depp realized that he couldn't go to her because if he did go to her, that would be a sign, a signal that she wasn't actually dead and that they killed the wrong person. Yeah. That he had, and he had, I mean, it was an interesting, it was an interesting uh, method that that was the only way he could, he could protect her was by ignoring her. Um, the, uh, I, there was, there's a great scene in, um, in the Moore book where uh gull is dismantling and they, they they kind of allude to it slightly in this um where he's dismantling who he assumes is uh heather graham uh and he's giving a um kind of a lecture to uh, an audience an unseen audience of people that he's he's performing an autopsy and he's explaining about how uh, the, the shape of the human heart and how that's the strongest muscle and it's impossible to, to destroy. Um, but there's, there's a scene in a, in Alan Moore's book where, uh, he sees visions and he doesn't know what, you know, the visions he's seeing are the past and the future and things. 
And in one scene, he's performing this autopsy and he looks down and he's in a cube farm in some kind of like a modern day 20th century office. And he's looking around and there's all these people that are dressed in office uh, clothes looking at him oddly. And, um, you know, he, he suddenly finds himself in our present day. Um, and it, w- it wouldn't have made any sense in the movie, but it's rather striking in uh, it's rather striking in the in the book. Um, I don't I don't know how they I'm sure they tried to figure out a way of doing it, but it just wouldn't it would have made even less sense to to uh, film guards if they had if they had put it in as part of the movie. Yeah, they um, they do. Um, it is kind of an, an interesting how they do because they they do show several of Johnny Depp's um, opium visions and and they're very. They're they're very like late '90s, early 2000s. The you know the flash of images, um, like the 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 image montage, yeah. That's that you see a lot in like um, like the opening of Angel, I, I think, um, and also I want to say like the opening credits of Seven, you know, the, things like that. It 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 it's, looks very '90s and and it has the the bright um like the the primary color lighting like it's yeah. it's very saturated uh the, the saturated colors and, yeah and so, soft focus too a lot of soft focus everything is kind of blurry gaslighty looking um a, li- a limelight style of uh i think putting you in the period um generally i i'd say i i'd say this is a very for for the amount of people that were involved in it the actors I think it would be very average. I, I was yeah. I was kind of surprised at how average it was. <laughs> I thought it would be a lot more uh, exotic, considering Moore's bent for things. Um, yeah, and and more famously, you know, he absolutely hates with a passion every every film and TV adaptation of of one of his works. And, yeah, and, and this was this was the first one. This gave him great cause. Let me put it that way. It, uh, yeah, it's 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 a shame too, because uh, uh, and he did. Uh, he also did League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I think yes. he also hated. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it Which was. That, um, that's a film that I, that's that's almost like a guilty pleasure of mine. I like. I know it's awful, but yeah, I, well, yeah, I and, enjoy and the hell out of it. Adding Tom Sawyer in for no reason at all was just. <laughs> Why, why is he there? But it was like, let's, and, and let's make it. Yeah, let's Americans make it American. have to have somebody that they'll identify with. Yeah. Um, ah, just frustrating. <laughs> um, but it was, yeah, it was uh, fascinating to watch. Thank you, thank you for uh, for giving me this opportunity because I I don't know if I would have uh, uh, would have looked into it. It, yeah, it was. I think this is one of the ones that that's really kind of just fallen out of the public eye it's just one of those movies that's kind of disappeared and you know maybe a handful of people have seen it it hasn't really attracted any sort of cult following it just basically went away for the most part yeah um yeah uh i don't want to say disappoint i wonder if well you have it i would think if you've read the book it's disappointing but maybe if you haven't read the graphic novel it's not as disappointing yeah i i think it's it's an adequate um like murder mystery and it's it's a good entry point to um 
if you're someone that's interested in like true crime, it, it's got a lot of seeds and interesting ideas around the Jack the Ripper that you can then, it, it's like a good jumping off point to explore after watching the movie. It, it's, it entertains a lot of interesting ideas and concepts in, in a very kind of dumbed down Hollywood format. So I, I thought the, like the whole murder mystery was also, um, done well enough. Like it, it wasn't fantastic. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they, they had some red herrings and everything was explained in a way that it made sense at the end. I, I think the biggest mistake was Johnny Depp. He's a, you know he's great to see him on screen, but I think he sucks all the air out of the movie when he every time he's on the screen it's um uh to use the Peter Griffith line he insists upon himself he's very it, it when he's there he demands to be followed that you know you have to pay attention to what Johnny Depp is doing and he shouldn't have played that big a role in this film. The, the, I think the storyline should have focused more on Gull uh, and the, and the Masons rather than uh, the constant uh, turning back to Aberlin. Yeah. Uh, I think, I, I think he, uh, which it's surprising because I, I think his character is actually a little bit toned down from the Johnny Depp that we know now. That's true. Yeah. He wasn't uh, <laughs> Edward Scissorhandsing it. Or or Jack Sparrowing it, I guess. Right. But um, yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen what Zack Snyder could have done with this. Uh, the, you know, the way he did uh, Watchmen, I would have been interested in seeing how uh, how a watch how uh, From Hell would have been through Snyder's eyes. Yeah, I, I think Snyder, um, you know, he has a lot of criticism, but he's good at at building a dense visual story that still has mass market appeal. Yeah. I mean, I, I think although this, you know, there, in seeing how he dealt with Watchmen and making that difficult decision to get rid of the pirate story completely, um, that was a tough call, but I think he did the right thing in terms of focusing on a story that you can tell in two and a half hours versus or, or three hours. Every, if you, yeah, or three hours. Yeah. Let's, <laughs> if you include the, the director's cut. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think getting rid of the, the pirates, uh, sub, sub story, uh, was probably his smartest move, even though it was difficult to do. Um, Moore is multidimensional and you're trying to show something in a two dimensional, uh, film that is, you know, you can't set it aside and have, have dinner and come back and read some more. It has to be done in, in the time frame of, uh, you know, the next showing. Although I'm still curious, um, cause I'm, one thing that I haven't seen is they, they do have the ultimate cut, which I believe does reinsert the, the pirate story. Oh, well, they, the animated, animated. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I've seen the animated one and it, it does okay standing alone. Yeah. But uh, I, I think they do like in the ultimate cut, they do somehow cut that in, but I haven't seen it myself. So I'm not sure how, how they worked that into it. Yeah, because I mean that takes you that really takes you away from the. I mean it's it's a whole different story that's going on. So mm -hmm. um, I think that you know the way they handle Back to the Future too, I think is probably, probably the better thing. Just have it at the separate a second show, and then you can explain the pirate movies going on while the rest of this stuff that you've already seen is happening in the background. Yeah, I, although I, I did love the the 
that pirate story as as a standalone animated feature. It's very yeah. like Tales from the Crib esque. Yeah, very EC Comics. Yeah, um, yeah, very very enjoyable. And it's a world where they already have superheroes, so the only kind of comics that you have would be pirates. Because mm. why, why write about real life? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, yeah, th- yeah. Thanks. Thanks for thanks for the opportunity to to watch this. I don't like I said. I don't think I would have maybe if it was on HBO and it, and I happen to be home and I didn't have know where the remote was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I might watch it. But yeah, this was it was an interesting assignment. Yeah, I'm glad you appreciated it. One of the the struggles that I do have with this this format is that there's a lot of mediocre and bad superhero movies. And the good ones are ones that most people have seen already. Uh, so it, it's it's good whenever I can introduce somebody to a a film that they can still appreciate, even if it might not be you know the the best film. Yeah, no, I, I've I've sat through two Fantastic Four uh, <laughs> ventures, and I, I I don't think I could do it. Again. I'm I worried that I know that they're going to appear in the MCU, but I don't think I could stand a third one. Yeah, I, I've I've watched all four of them, and you know I've watched uh, some of them multiple times. Wow, um, that you know the the Tim Story one, uh, the uh, the two thousands one, I, oh, I yeah. think is has some fun moments, and the, yeah, the I, Roger I, I liked... Corman one is just hilariously bad. Yeah, yeah. The, um... I do enjoy Michael Chiklis as the, as the thing. I thought he did a he did a great job, great interpretation, and he did manage to act through all that that rubber. Um, but uh, yeah, I I thought that uh, Jessica Alba. Well, <laughs> more superhero movies. Yeah, Jessica Alba. I thought was miscast. Um, it was interesting seeing Chris Evans. Chris Evans did a good job as uh, as Johnny. Um, you know, being being the Human Torch, mm-hmm. and uh, Ewan Griffith. I would never have picked him as a uh, Mr. Fantastic, but I thought he did a very adequate job of being this uh, nerdy, self-centered, uh, uh, you know, science nut. Uh, he he did he really caught the personality of Rich. And, and if you read the old Stanley Jack Kirby uh, '60s Fantastic Four, R- Reed Richards was a jerk, <laughs> and he he caught that whole jerk uh, attitude, uh, or not not he doesn't. Every you know the villain is the hero in their own story, and he he kept thinking of himself as the hero, but actually it's just the one that screws everything up all the time. <laughs> and I th- I thought that Ewan Griffith did a did a great job at, at that. Um, it just it was a little bit too disjointed the, the ones that that I've I've seen of uh of of that era of Fantastic Four. But who knows? Maybe we'll we'll give the MCU <laughs> a chance to see what they can come up with. Yeah, well, I I am curious to see what what direction they're going to go. But yeah, I'd like to, to thank you for coming on. It, it was a pleasure to talk with you today. Well, thanks for having me. And um, you know, why don't you go ahead and let everybody know where they can find you online? Well, I've I've got a couple of places. The easiest way to find me is go to my main site, jimokane.com. J-I-M-O-K-A-N-E.com. You can find my entire uh, bibliography of uh, ways of wasting your time on podcasts. <laughs> you can find any of the uh, eight podcasts I've done so far, uh, including well the new one that's coming up. If you're listening to this in the future on February 28, 2022, I am producing a, a group movies by minutes project called uh, this one is the Silverado Minute, where we go over uh, the 1985 uh, Western that uh, uh, that bro- uh, that it really brought back the Western and all star cast. 
uh, written by the guy who wrote uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, uh, and directed uh, by by the same fellow. So, um, uh, we will start the show February twenty eighth, twenty twenty two. Twenty six teams of movies by minutes host. Think of this like a Whitman sampler of, uh, of movies by minutes host. I each get five minutes. They'll do Monday through Friday. They do five episodes and then we're on to the next host. So it should be fascinating. This is the fifth time we've done it. Uh, in the past, we've done uh, movies as diverse as Die Hard, North by Northwest, um, uh, the best years of our lives. And, uh, you know, they're, they're all out there still, still for your listening pleasure. So if you want to get lost in the, uh, in, a, in, a, in some great podcasts, join us. Uh, but that'll be at, uh, it's available at silveradominute.com uh, after February 28th, 2022. And as always, I am Bubba Wheat, and you can find me at flightstightsmovienights.com. You can find me on Twitter at Bubba Wheat, and you can find this podcast, FilmWise, on anchor.fm, as well as anywhere else where you listen to podcasts. My other uh, podcast, It's Time to Rewind, it's a... Uh, about time loops, covering them one loop at a time, and um, and I've forgotten if there was anything else. I, I have a Facebook group. It's time to rewind a time loop group uh, where you can come and talk about time loops in general. And uh, you know, I I hope to be back next month with a, another episode of Filmwise. So until next time. <laughs>